1: So Kellen and I absolutely love the weeks where we get to sit down and have interviews with prominent people from the Collapse community. Today's interview is with someone who we have referenced several times throughout the podcast and from whom many of the theories that we've talked about in the podcast come. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph Tainter. Dr. Tainter is professor of sustainability in the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University, having previously served as department head. He worked on issues of sustainability before the term became common, including his acclaimed book, the one that you all either have read or should read if you haven't, which is The Collapse of Complex Societies, written in 1988. His most recent book is Drilling Down, The Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma, which was written in 2012. Dr. Tainter's research has been used in more than 40 countries and in many scientific and applied fields. Among other institutions, his work has been consulted in the United Nations Environment Program, UNESCO, the World Bank, the RAND Corporation, the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, and many others. Dr. Tainter has also appeared in many films, TV shows, and literature. His current research focuses on complexity, sustainability, energy, and innovation. We hope you enjoy this interview. Dr. Joseph Tainter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor. My pleasure. How long have you known or, or thought about collapse, and what got you started in this sort of world of, of systems thinking?
2: Well, collapse has long been one of the big questions in history and archaeology. Uh, such things as how and when and why did people develop agriculture? How did states come about? How did empires come about? Um, and why do societies collapse? Or why have societies in the past seemed to regularly collapse? So as an archaeologist, I was aware of this as an interesting topic. I was always a little disappointed in the literature on it. I felt that the existing literature did not fully explain collapse. Um, So I I was thinking about it um, back in the early 1980s. uh, I had written an overview of the prehistory of part of Western New Mexico, and a colleague of mine read it, and asked me to give a presentation on the collapse topic at a meeting he was convening at the annual meeting of the Society for American Archaeology. This, this was in uh, May, I think, of 1983. So, so I did. I, I gave the presentation. Mostly the presentation focused on raising questions about it. I felt at that time that I didn't have an answer to it. But I kept it in my mind, and a few months later, I was reading in an entirely well seemingly unrelated field, and that was uh, in ecology something called optimal foraging theory, which deals with diminishing returns to foragers um you know, either animals or humans uh foraging in environmental patches and and how ultimately that produces diminishing returns and and it was like I was immediately struck in the head because i suddenly realized oh okay diminishing returns this applies to the study of complexity and this is something that can lead us to an understanding of collapse so i began working on it immediately i sat down and in about 40 minutes i had sketched out the book i had the idea i sketched out the book and as i looked back a little while later i realized that back in the 1983 meeting at the Society for American Archaeology, that I've actually had I had the idea all along. I just didn't know how to express it. Uh, I needed the economic terminology of diminishing returns to, to express the idea, to develop the idea, and to develop an explanation of collapse. So as you know, my, my approach to collapse deals with increasing complexity uh, and declining complexity. I define a collapse as a rapid loss of an established level of complexity. In other words, a rapid simplification of a society. And I see complexity as an economic function. Uh, Societies increase in complexity very largely to solve problems. And complexity can be very effective at this. But over time, it, uh, increasing in complexity uh, reaches a point of diminishing returns because complexity always has a cost. Complexity is never free. Uh, in the animal kingdom, complexity has a metabolic cost. Uh, in uh, among humans, we it, complexity also has a metabolic cost, but it's translated into things like time, money, work, and, and so forth. So this this is how I got started in it. I, I sketched out the book in um, late 1983. Uh, it was done about two years later. Uh, it was a rather radical approach to collapse at the time, so. Uh, a colleague who was editing a series of books for Cambridge University Press asked me to submit it to the series, but it took them a while to accept it. It took them a couple of years to accept it. And and then, of course, there's some time to produce the book. So it came out in 1988, middle of 1988.
0: And I've just got to say, it's so exciting to have this conversation with you, because when Corey first began teaching me about collapse, you were one of the first names that came up when you talk about your journey in developing uh, your view and theory of collapse, it seems like since then there have been plenty of others who have also come to the same conclusion, but maybe via a different route. So I'm curious, do you feel like there are others in this space, other people that talk or write about collapse that you align closely with, or maybe even those that you disagree with?
2: As far as aligning closely, there are people who, have understood the theory. There are people who've worked on it uh, in their own fields, uh, usually a geographical area like what's called Mesoamerica, Central America, Southern Mexico region, or in the Near East, who have realized that, uh, in in fact, the theory helped to clarify collapse in in the cases that they were working in. I I don't know that I would say I align myself with anyone. Uh, I, I am very interested in some Contemporary economic work um, on uh, issues in sustainability, uh, issues in um, the development of of innovation, uh, how innovation changes and becomes more complex over time. I I actually spend most of my time now reading in those fields and trying to read in those authors. Uh, And I found that that there are a fair number of them whose thinking on uh, diminishing returns on complexity align fairly closely with my own.
1: So obviously a lot has changed since 1988 when uh, you wrote The the Collapse of Complex Societies. I'm curious, what has sort of changed or has anything changed in your viewpoint of how the world works since you first wrote that book and maybe what our current societal situation is?
2: Well, my my understanding of complexity has expanded a bit. Um, I originally approached complexity as a problem-solving strategy, society's increase in complexity to solve problems. Uh, An example I like to give is uh, we used to be perfectly happy with automobiles with a single means of propulsion. Uh, We now have automobiles with two means of propulsion. They've increased in complexity. Uh, We need software to make the two engines work together. And and, and this this is an increase in complexity. I, I have realized, though, that there have been a few occasions in human history, and they're very rare, when, when complexity increases in response to opportunities. That is, when a society's energy supply has grown, and being the humans, the species that we are, when we have surplus energy, we tend to find ways to use it up. Um, and, but there, these instances are rare in human history. One can think of the origins of agriculture, agriculture the origins of industrialism, we may be going through a period like that now with information technology, where there are short periods where humans experience surplus energy and the complexity of society seems to increase in response. But as I say, these are very rare. Usually, I still maintain that most of the time, complexity increases to solve problems.
1: Well said, well said. And it seems like uh, we have no shortage of problems to, to solve right now. That is for sure.
2: Yes, I mean, that's true. And one of the reasons why people have trouble understanding uh, that complexity has a metabolic cost, have trouble understanding it today, um, is that complexity appears to us to be free. We pay for it with fossil fuels. Uh, In the past, in the ancient societies that I have have worked on, uh, increasing the complexity of the society meant that people had to work harder. Uh, which would mean, generally mean peasants would be paying more taxes, for example, or uh, people would be working harder to gain um, to gain the food that they need to survive, whether it 's hunter gatherers or early agriculturalists that um, if say the population was to increase, uh, they would have to acquire more food, and that would often mean working harder
0: i've heard from watching lectures of yours you talk about how people often believe that innovation is something we can continually count on. And your viewpoint is that that's not necessarily the case. I'd, I'd love to uh, hear you elaborate on that a little bit, if you will.
2: Well, after the book came out in 88, I began gradually changing my focus to contemporary issues and sustainability. What I had learned doing the book wasn't just about ancient societies. It had definite implications for us today and, and for our future. So I began working on contemporary issues in sustainability, as I said, and I came up against the conventional argument of technological optimists that um, sustainability isn't an issue, that we will always be able to innovate our way out of problems, and that the, the, the issue is always, um, is the freedom to innovate? Uh, are there constraints to innovation? Is uh, our tax rates too high, for example, as a conventional argument? Um, or constraints to a market economy, to free exchange of ideas. Uh, That's another conventional argument that that sustainability isn't an issue because we will always be able to innovate. And up until this point, that argument has been pretty much correct. It's worked out. You know, here we are. uh, We have the longest life expectancies in human history. At least those of us in the wealthy countries enjoy a material standard of living that humans in the past never experienced. Um, I mean, even Roman emperors did not live as well as people of moderate income today. Um, They didn't live in houses that had central heating and air conditioning. Um, And today we have those things that we take them for granted. So innovation has worked for us up until this point. The question in my mind was, will it always work forever? And the point that I think has been overlooked by technological optimists is that innovation increases in complexity and it increases in costliness over time. And if this is, in fact, the case, then it's possible that innovation will not uh, always provide a way out of our problems. Uh, you can look in general at, the, uh, say, the history of innovation since the 19th century, where innovation was once done by what are called lone wolf naturalists, like Charles Darwin, uh, people like that, Marie Curie. Uh, uh, people who work individually as as naturalists and in many cases, uh, revolutionized whole fields of learning. And we still rely on the work of some of those people today. But innovation today rarely involves lone wolf naturalists. Most of the time now, it involves uh, interdisciplinary teams that seem to grow larger and larger. And these teams are housed in Institutions of learning or in commercial institutions that themselves have uh, buildings that have to be paid for, heating and cooling costs, uh, staff to support them, they have to pay for janitors, they pay for administrative assistants, they pay for supervisors. All of these things indicate that our, our way of innovating today has grown increasingly costly. So has it produced proportionate returns or is it producing diminishing returns? Well, I didn't know the answer. Well, I suspected the answer to that, but I didn't have a firm answer for several years until I ran into, met a couple of people who have worked on issues in urbanism and innovation. And what I found from them is is that they had put together a database of something like three to five million patents from the U.S. Patent Office. And so I, I thought we can work with this. We can in, use this to investigate whether, um, whether innovation is producing increasing returns or diminishing returns. So my friends have put together this database beginning in, I think, 1972, which was the first year that um, the patent office produced data that we could use. And investigated this, looked at this through time. And what we found is that up until about 2012, when we cut off the data set, uh, it was taking more and more people, more and more investigators to develop an innovation that warranted a patent. It was taking more and more people to achieve innovations. And conversely, the measure of patents per inventor was going down. What this means is that patenting is experiencing diminishing returns. And we looked at this in science or, or in patenting as a whole. We looked at it in some specific fields um, like biofuels, and we see it consistently across every field we've looked at. Uh, and, and so this is what has happened to innovation today, to primarily to uh, research in the commercial sphere, but even also in the academic sphere. Uh, it takes more and more Uh, Individual scholars representing more and more disciplines to to achieve a constant rate of innovation. There were some people who've recognized this in the past, um, but they never really had the database to prove it, and we have the database to show it. So what, what we have shown is that the productivity of innovation over the past 30 years or so, which would be about the length of a scientist's career, has declined by over 20%. And there's no reason to think that this is going to change. It's going to productivity of innovation is going to continue to decline. And before this century is out, uh, our system of innovation is going to be very different. Um, Entities such as appropriating bodies, um, our firms that fund innovation are going to start cutting back. They're going to find that their investments aren't paying off. And so innovation, the productivity of innovation because it is declining will lead to less and less innovation uh, i would say before this century is over so this this to me um ends to undercut the technological optimists their argument that well we can just always innovate forever no we're not going to be able to always innovate forever we're going to reach a point where innovation is simply too expensive and too unproductive
0: it's so fascinating to hear about that especially uh because i think as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been the kind of research that you're talking about out, outside of what you and your colleagues have done. So I think that's very enlightening. I could see uh, some individuals maybe saying that less patents get filed simply because the process itself is burdensome or the uh, returns aren't good enough. It really doesn't protect whatever innovation they've created. And I could also maybe see people looking to something like artificial intelligence as these tools that can boost innovation without requiring a, a lot more energy or human capital. Do you have any thoughts in response to that?
2: Well, as I said, there've been, there been revolutions in, in human history that have, that have raised um, the productivity of how people acquire what they need the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution. And, and I think, the revolution in information technology is another such phase but we have shown in one of our data sets that the productivity of innovation in information technology and in software is declining just like it is in everything else now you go online and you can find lots and lots of electronic products to buy but it's costing more and more to develop and and market them and of course firms don't admit to this they don't they don't want us to know how much uh, they don't want their competitors to know what they are spending on research and development, uh, R&D, to use the acronym. Um, This is something that uh, firms generally keep quiet so that the patent data were really the only kind of, the only data set we could use. And there's one thing I should mention that's important because people ask, well, how is innovation doing in other countries? Over half of US patents are granted to foreign entities. So what we are really measuring is global innovation with this study.
1: So you're, you're mentioning here, you're talking about diminishing marginal returns on technological advancement. And it sounds like when you say, you know, by the end of the century, the process of innovation is going to look very different than it does now. And that to me sounds like the simplification that you're referring to um, in your definition of, of collapse. Um, you said it was a rapid Simplification of society, and I'm curious if you could touch a little more on that. Um, maybe the rapid part first. What what do you consider rapid?
2: Oh, I, I can't define that. I, that's that's something that I have encountered many times thinking about ancient societies. I I, I can't define it uh, because th- there are many cases in history where a, a society seems to increase in complexity, but only for a generation or so. Some people consider those collapses. I don't consider them collapses. I think I think it needs to take at least uh, perhaps a couple of generations. That would be what I mean by rapid. Now, as far as um, as our own situation is concerned, I don't think that a decline in innovation necessarily has to mean the simplification of society as a whole. That is largely dependent on energy. As long as we have the energy to fuel engines and produce electricity and so forth, uh, I, I think our way of life can continue But what we have to consider is, can our population keep growing? Can we keep using more and more resources to fund our way of life, to sustain the way we live? And this is where the technological optimists have said, oh, it doesn't matter, we can always innovate. Well, no, I'm not sure we will always be able to innovate as we've become accustomed to it over, let's say, the last century, 150 years or so.
1: So as the EROEI of oil continues to decrease, um, do you view that as a major threat? Do you, do you think that we're making rapid enough advancements in things like um, <clears throat> renewables? Or what, what's your opinion there?
2: Renewables do not have the productivity, the return on investment of fossil fuels. Nothing does. Um, but at the same time, because of climate change, we know that we have to cut back on using them. We will never stop using fossil fuels entirely. We're going to need them for lubricants, for petrochemicals. And there is nothing more useful than a liquid fuel for transportation. Uh, I I am uncertain about a future filled with nothing but uh, electrically driven vehicles. Uh, it would require um, the development of charging stations all over this country and probably all over the world. That's an enormous task. Uh, possibly we could do it, but we're going to pay for it. We're going to have to pay for it. Um, and 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 that that is, that I think is the future. If we really do switch to uh, electric vehicles, um, it's going to be very very high cost to to make that switch. Changes in in energy sources usually take something like forty to fifty years to play out. It t- it takes that long to make a change from one energy source to another. So I, I think we've got probably a good thirty to forty years to go in a transition to to renewable energy sources. And, and as I want to emphasize, renewable energy sources are just not as productive as fossil fuels. Um, it it can take um, you know hundreds of square miles, thousands of square miles, to produce um, the energy that can be produced out of um, let's say. Um, Southern, the Southern California oil fields, or the Louisiana oil fields, or the Texas or Oklahoma oil fields—it um, it simply takes a lot of land. Because ultimately, most renewables are dependent on solar energy, and the product of the productivity of solar energy is really very low. Uh, so, in in the future, um, a future dependent on renewable energy sources is going to be very environmentally damaging and it's not going to be as productive as what we're used to.
0: Yeah, you've mentioned the damages to the environment and uh, the threat that climate change poses. And I've heard you, you know, talk in the past about different examples throughout history of collapse, you know, like the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and and other empires. Uh, In today's world, We've got climate change, which seems to be a threat we haven't ever had to worry about in past civilizations. And we've also got globalization, where, you know, supply chains connect the whole globe together. There's a lot of interdependency. So what do you think is different about the threats that we face today globally compared to kind of a more localized collapse from a past empire?
2: One major difference is is that the world is full. Uh, the world today is filled with complex societies. So I I have argued that if there's going to be a collapse today, it's going to be global. Uh, It might not affect third world countries as much as it might affect the first world, but it is something, I guarantee you, it is not something we want to experience. Um, It would result in the deaths of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, We don't want to go through that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, And that kind of brings me to a question that I wanted to ask. What misconceptions do you see that get perpetuated in conversations about collapse that you would love to put a stop to? For example, one that I have heard before is people say there almost seems to be people who kind of wish for a collapse of society purely because they, they likely don't understand what it is. But are there other misconceptions that you feel or find that you have to correct often?
2: Well, I think you put your mind on a good one. There, there are people who would value, and, and it can be very explicit about this, who would value a simpler way of life. That's fine if that's what they choose. Uh, I I wrote in uh, a a book I produced with a colleague about uh, 2012, I think it came out. It was a book on the Gulf oil spill. I took on uh, the role of energy in society. My colleague talked about the technical aspects of the Gulf oil spill. And I talked in there about something I had learned from a colleague in a conference about slow living. And some people find this very attractive. There's things about it that I find attractive. Um, but, but it's, it's part of this mindset that many people have that they would like to live a simpler life. Uh, my feeling is most people won't adopt that because they wanna have a good standard of living. Uh, they wanna have opportunities for their children. Uh, they wanna compete with the Joneses in material consumption and, 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 and so forth. So I, I don't see most people adopting this mindset but for those who do, that's fine. Uh, I wish them well. I hope uh, I wish them a good life. It seems like
1: part of the issue is it's being romanticized a bit to some people that have this vision of of a slower life, which I agree in a lot of ways is very attractive and sounds sounds amazing. Um, but perhaps they're skipping over the part that you mentioned, the, the terrible consequences of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of deaths resulting from the chaos that comes from from simplification?
2: Yeah, I I teach a sustainability class, and and I I start the class by contrasting life somewhere in Western Europe, let's say 200 years ago, with with life today. 200 years ago, life expectancy would be 40 years. A woman might have a half dozen children, of which two would live to adulthood. Uh, Something that we consider easy to deal with like appendicitis would be a gruesome way to die. There would be very little in the way of education. Most people would receive no formal education. People who received anything resembling higher education would be primarily members of the clergy. And and this is what life was like. Most people never traveled more than a few miles from where they were born. Most people would own only the clothes they were wearing. And if they were lucky, they might have a cloak for winter wear. And 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 the contrast between then and now, I, I pose to my class is what we want to sustain. We want to sustain the gains we have made in quality of life, uh, but we want to do it without destroying the earth. Um, so this is this is the, this is the focus of, of that class.
0: Yeah, and that makes me curious. As you talk about sustainability with students, do you also talk about the threats and and? potential collapse and if so how do they respond to that
2: um i, I teach two classes in both of them i hit stu- students with a dose of reality at the age at which i get my students uh, they tend to be idealistic and um i i i'm a, I'm a realist and and i don't i, I won't teach idealism I, I just don't believe in it so I, I teach them reality, and, and they understand it. By the, by, I mean, by the time the semester's over, they understand it. That doesn't mean that they've lost their ideals, uh, and I wouldn't want them to lose their ideals. But I, I have taught them things particularly about energy that they should pay attention to for the rest of their lives, uh, not just the price of gas at the pump, which goes up and down, but uh, energy return on investment and, and future supplies of energy. And what does it really mean? if we make a a change to uh, substantially substantially rely on renewable fuels.
1: So I've heard you say before that conservation alone does not produce sustainability. And that might um, refer back to the idealism and and the thoughts around conservation, which, of course, conservation is important. Could you explain what you're trying to say there?
2: I have have argued and I've discussed in presentations that because complexity increases to solve problems, uh, contemporary societies cannot simply reduce their consumption of resources and, and figure that well, all is well, because problems are inevitable. New problems will arise. We will probably meet them by increasing complexity, and that's going to increase uh, our energy consumption and, our, and our, other, our consumption of other resources. So I, you know, as I say, I'm not, I'm not an idealist. I'm a realist.
0: That leads me to a question. As you talk about some people being idealists, where you're a realist, you also mentioned previously these technological optimists. When you give any sort of messaging about collapse, or when people read your book, or, or you have a lecture, where do you see the most pushback?
2: Oh, I actually, I actually see very little, but I did get a lot of pushback when I gave a talk um, in the information technology department at a major university, they, they see themselves as the world saviors. They, they, they did not like my message. And I, the topic <laughs> is on productivity and innovation.
1: And, and I'm guessing their argument was something that along the lines of what Kellan was talking about before with AI and the fact that we're in the middle of a, a perhaps a, a new technological revolution. Was that their main pushback for you? And, and how did you respond or did you just leave them with the message in, in part ways?
2: Um, I, I return to my slide showing our our, our results, um, showing that that I mean I have a chart that shows how the productivity of innovation has declined since the early 1970s and how it is continuing to decline, and and since then uh, we my colleagues and I have done more research, uh, particularly on innovation in biofuel technologies, and we you know which some people at one time thought well you know biofuels are you know one of our gateways to the future. But, but what we see in biofuel technologies is the same problem of, uh, of diminishing returns to complexity that we see in, in every other field we've looked at. So I, I think they're just unrealistic. Um, they, they are living in something of a fantasy world of their own creation. And over the short term, they may very well be correct. Their fantasies may be reinforced. But you know, I'm a historian and archaeologist. I, I think long term and I evaluate things long term. And and long-term, they're going to be wrong.
0: You know, I am in awe of your knowledge when it comes to archaeology and history, as I've looked at some of your works. And I'm really curious, what parallels do you see today to past societies, uh, past empires that have collapsed? Is there any sort of parallel that you see that causes concern for you?
2: Well, well it, it, you know, as I've said, it, it comes down to increasing complexity, higher costs and diminishing returns to complexity. I see that in the past and I see it today. Uh, as, as I said, we're unaware of this because we pay for complexity with fossil fuels. So we're not aware of it. To us, complexity is free. Uh, and, and this is why I think people sometimes people have a hard time understanding that complexity costs. It's an economic function and, and that it reaches diminishing returns.
1: I think a big part of what you're saying, when you say people don't understand, people don't tend to think. In my opinion, in systems, we weren't evolved to think with these big ideas in mind. We view what's in front of us. We view what's happening to us right now. And um, we've talked in the past on the podcast about how, when it comes to exponentials, big numbers, um, you know, the human experience over such a, a small blip of geological t- um, timeline, we just we aren't good at thinking that way. Um, would you agree that that's part of the problem in being where we are today is is that societal understanding of these issues is just so lacking?
2: You have to think about the context in which the human species evolved. People lived locally. They lived seasonally. There was no such thing as planning for the long term or thinking about far distant places because they didn't know that far distant places existed. And, and so I have argued that natural selection favored humans, human beings who are not broad scale thinkers. We did not evolve to be broad scale thinkers. And by that, I mean to think broadly in time or in space, both of which are necessary if we're going to achieve uh, a sustainable future. You know, we have to learn to think broadly in time and space uh, if if I was a lot younger um, and, and and was working in these ideas, I think I would want to spend time talking, maybe to K to twelve educators, try to explain this phenomenon to them. But there are so many millions of them that uh, you know, there's no way I can I can even begin to to reach them to get them to understand. Um, I, I I hope maybe some of them can do as as you have done and and come across my work, come across the talks I've given and. And, and they will learn there about the problem of the limited capacity to think broadly of, of the human species. We did not evolve to be broad-scale thinkers.
1: Seeing that perhaps the, the number of people who do think that way is relatively small compared to the overall population. For those of us, those listening to this podcast who, who are able to, to think that way, who have seen your work, um, who value this conversation, what is the best thing that they can do to whether that's help other people understand or um, cause some sort of change? You know, what what would you recommend for people to do once they have this information?
2: Well, I, I get that question a lot, and, and my response is, is that the first step is awareness. And and if you're reading what I've written or you're listening to me given a talk, you've made the first step toward awareness. Can can you influence the species as a whole, or the citizens of this country as a whole, well, that's a challenge um, because we're talking about some deep abstractions that don't affect people in their daily lives. So, as I say, I'm a realist. I, I don't have a nice answer to that.
0: Going back to the conversation about previous societies and the fall of past empires, when I've done my limited research, I feel like I've seen a pattern as a society approaches collapse, that there's oftentimes a, a widening wealth gap or a disappearance of the middle class. There's there's more struggles economically and financially. Uh, do you feel that you've seen that as well? Do you agree that that's a contributing factor, or is that simply an outcome of a collapsing society?
2: Well, the widening wealth gap, I think, is, is a, well, I know it's a very important problem in, in our society today. I'm not sure it's a contributor to collapse. I could be wrong. Um, I, I have actually not given a lot of thought to it, but it just doesn't intuitively strike me as, as something I would find it worthwhile to pursue. As far as a middle class goes, that, that is certainly a problem in our society, and our economy, that you know, the middle class is, is being, slow, seems being slowly whittled away. That That is a topic that has come to interest me lately, but it's something I'm still working on, and I don't want to go into it at this point. Yeah, it's a that's a big conversation for sure. I, I will repeat a question I ask my sustainability class, and that is: Does having is having a middle class um, an impediment to sustainability? And as you would imagine, they are baffled by the question, and none of them has ever come up to ever tried to answer it. I pose it to them early in the semester, and I say at the end of the semester, I'd like to bring this up again, please be thinking about it. But I know they don't, it's just too, it's just too much to bite off. But, but it, is a provo- it is a provocative question that I think we need to consider. Is having a middle class, which is where the bulk of consumption is, the bulk of resource consumption, is having a middle class an impediment to sustainability? You know, I'd get nailed to a cross if I said that too publicly. Um, <laughs> but I do think, I give thought to it.
1: I mean, that's, that's a valid question, and like you said, a tough one to answer uh, for sure, or at least to, to answer, admit out loud. So being, being a realist, as you stated, um, but teaching sustainability, what do you see as being the best outcome for our society, perhaps the most optimistic outcome that we still have the chance to achieve?
2: Well, I can't fully foresee the future. What I will say is that we're a species that muddles through. It's all we've ever done, and it's all we ever will
1: do. Interesting. You said a a species that muddles through, and I, for for whatever reason, I got this instant vision of like cockroaches scurrying around for some reason. Like we can survive, we can survive anything, even as conditions worsen, we might make it through. Um, Can you explain a little more what you mean by we muddle, we muddle through?
2: Well, I I sometimes say that we're the cockroaches of the the biological world. Um, We're almost infinitely malleable and adaptable. Um, Muddle through means simply proceed step by step without a plan. Uh, There are any number of people who have plans for how to achieve sustainability. I don't think any of them will ever be put into effect or would ever be effective. Uh, We will will address problems one at a time as they arise. And that's what our species has always done.
1: Maybe one more question on the, the sustainability topic. Um, do, is there something that you advocate to your students for sustainability in the future? Or are you posing mostly sort of theoretical questions to your students? Or, or is there something that you're advocating for to become a sustainable society?
2: I'm, I'm always advocating for knowledge, for awareness. Um, beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm a theorist. I have, but I, as, a, as a theorist, I have also thought about are there practical things we can do? Uh, I don't have optimistic answers to that question. Um, if, if I thought there were idealized things that we could do that, that maybe could produce a more sustainable future, I, I would be writing about them. But I don't have them. I, I, I simply see impediments.
0: You know, those statements and, and really this whole topic, everything we're talking about can come across as dreary and maybe rightfully so. You mentioned you're a realist but I know some people take it a step further and and become alarmist and are so terrified of what's coming this year and the next year and in the near future. Uh, Is there anything uh, you use as you talk to people like that to help them gain a more realistic perspective and and perhaps pacify some of those alarming emotions?
2: Well, I I can give you an example. There there was an article on my work that appeared, uh, in November 2020, in the New York Times Magazine, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, it was done by a journalist named Ben Aaron who was dealing with um, being under quarantine, I think, from the uh, from the coronavirus COVID. And I think that caused him to pick up my book and read. And and he, we did a number of interviews, and he wound up writing an article about it. Uh, but one of the things he asked me was, d- did I foresee collapse in the near future? And the answer is no, I, I don't foresee a collapse in the near future. I don't say it's an impossibility, um, but, I don't, but I don't foresee it. Now, one thing that does concern me, and I talk to my students about this, is we've made a transition, uh, at least in my lifetime, to what's called just-in-time delivery, and that has always made me very nervous because it leaves us vulnerable to, to supply disruptions. You get a supply disruption big enough and long lasting enough, and people are gonna start to starve to death. We can see a mild outcome of just-in-time delivery now with, with the supply problems that, that we're having, You know, initially running out of toilet paper, now uh, grocery store shelves are in, in places empty. Um, and it's a it's a problem of supply. It, in a way, it has given us a mild warning, maybe a mild slap telling us that it is dangerous to rely on just-in-time delivery. And um, as I say this is this is one thing I would foresee could could cause a collapse um, if if supply change became thoroughly disrupted for the long term. I, I don't, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen. And I I, you know, I am hoping that we learn the lesson from the disruption that we're experiencing now. I don't think we will, but I hope.
1: I, I agree. So we've talked about a few things um, that are happening currently from just now supply chains. We've talked about um, declining EROEI of oil and other types of energy, um, the energy transition that we're going through. What would you say is, most concerning to you looking in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Is it the supply chains that you just mentioned or is it something else?
2: Well, that's hard to answer. What concerns me most? I I would say climate. I'd say climate concerns me most because it's tied up with energy, with fossil fuels, with what people do for a living, uh, with the supply chain disruptions. Um, I mean, climate's just involved in everything. You know, and 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 it looks I mean for a long time, you know, the effects of climate change were just something off in the future. We didn't need to worry about it right away. Well, it's become clear over the last couple of years that it's starting to affect us now. I mean, it is starting to change weather patterns and 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 it's gonna it's gonna to continue to change weather patterns, and those changes are gonna be expensive and disruptive and they're gonna hurt us.
1: It is amazing to consider just the last it seems like the last 3 or 4 years and the rapid change that we've seen in in climate change consequences um, and and the increases in cost and this is going back to again the idea of exponentials and tipping points and things that it's just hard for for humans to naturally understand and it will certainly be interesting to see what the next decade or two hold as far as the challenges that climate change brings
0: so as we talk about you know climate change and all of these other issues that we've mentioned, and you think about the future for yourself and for your loved ones. What has been your process over the last 35 years that you've you've been aware of all these issues of coping with that and still finding optimism or at least fulfillment while still dealing with the realism of our, our situation?
2: <laughs> I will say quite honestly that I enjoy what I'm doing. Um, I'm studying a fascinating topic in human evolution I can't think of a better thing to do with my life and I enjoy working on it I enjoy having ideas I enjoy writing uh, I enjoy talking to you guys about uh, about this Um, I, I hope that doesn't sound like I don't care because I do but I'll be perfectly honest I enjoy working on this
1: yeah, that's a question that we get a lot as well, um, and we we encounter a wide range from our listeners of of different states of of coping with the idea. Um, some people are very distraught about it, right? Some people. Um, I I find myself in the same camp as you, and I've talked about this a lot in the podcast. That it's just a fascinating topic. It is so interesting. We are in uh, living in a very uh, interesting time in in history, and you know I've got. Hopefully, another 50 or 60 years to live. And so I'm sure I'll be experiencing many difficult times in my future, and things are going to to change dramatically. But for whatever reason, I feel more intrigued than I do scared. But I think your conversation today uh, has helped, hopefully, our listeners to feel like they're gaining additional knowledge. You know, if you haven't listened um, to Dr. Tainter's Lectures or read his books. We highly recommend to everyone uh, listening to this podcast now to check those out because they are just a huge wealth of information that that, that will help, I think, bring you to an understanding of, of these issues in a way that's that's calming in a way.
2: I I, I I will add in in response to your last point that there are times when I get scared. There are. I I don't want to see us having a collapse. It would be gruesome. As I said probably hundreds of millions of people would die if we have a genuine collapse probably more probably actually billions would die if we have a collapse i don't i don't want to see that happen so i i mean there are times when i'm scared there have been times when i find myself wishing i was wrong you know and and if i'm wrong and the future turns out to be rosy that's great i won't be around to see it but that's great you know my descendants will maybe enjoy it
0: well with everything we've talked about in mind and recognizing that much of our audience is new to the idea of collapse. Is there anything else you would want them to hear or, or anything else you would add? If not, that's okay. Just curious if, if there's more you would put a, a cap on this conversation with.
2: Well, tr- try to understand the twin dimensions of energy and complexity, how they are intertwined, how our lives Uh, have become complex over since humans first evolved. Uh, Homo sapiens is now dated to about 300,000 years ago. But particularly since the origins of agriculture, how societies have grown and become more and more complex, populations have grown, and all that has has involved energy, all that has required more and more energy. Understand those connections. That's what I would say to people.
1: Dr. Joseph Tainter, thank you so much for your time today. We've loved having you on the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.